Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of Cinemaholics. It is our long-awaited and long-promised Toronto International Film Festival recap episode. Now, this is the 45th TIFF to happen, and we're excited to talk about it this week. And Will Ashton, you are here with me because you saw... Uh, I want to say 31 films at this year's festival, correct? 33 films. 33. You keep mixing up. Sorry. <laughs> with, uh, you saw 31 at the Sundance Film Festival. Yes. I saw 33. Right, right, right. 33 films. Yeah, you outdid me very well. Very good stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it did help that it was digital. Yeah, it was a very strange <laughs> experience altogether. Yeah, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what it was like. Uh, and we're going to, of course, talk about the films. What are some of the films you listeners might want to have on your radar? What are some of the ones that are going to be on your radar, whether we like it or not? I think we're going to get into all of that. But first, I want to start, Will, before we talk about the movies themselves. Just very curious, what was this experience like? I mean, this is a virtual film festival for you know, one of it's a big change for one of the biggest festivals of the year. For listeners who don't yeah. know, TIFF tends to be one of the major indicators for films that are not just going to be nominated for Oscars, uh, including Best Picture, but they tend to win. A lot of them win. Um, I think like in the last few years, most of them have been films that premiered at TIFF or at least were showcased at TIFF. Can is also a big indicator, of course, but yeah, I'd say Can, Venice, and Toronto are the big ones in that regard. Yeah, and New York Film Festival to an extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so big festival. So what was it like? What was what was it like watching these films virtually? What was the process? All that fun stuff. Well, I mean, I should upfront say that I haven't been to regular TIFF, so I can't really compare it to that experience. Like, I can't say like, oh, it was different in this respect, or obviously, like, I can't say like, oh, like compared to seeing it at so and so theater, it was obviously diminished, and obviously, like. There is obviously going to be, you know, difference between like watching a movie on your laptop as opposed to being in a theater with like the filmmakers involved and like, you know, everyone cheering and then like having a chance to discuss the film afterward with other people. I'm sure that influenced some of my opinions in some way or another. But as far as the experience itself, um, it was cool for me. I mean, I obviously don't have access to a lot of these movies in most given years until like they're available to the public. So like (laughs) I was definitely, you know, uh, for it. I mean, obviously I missed the chance to see some of these movies in the theater and I would hope there's a chance somewhere later on where I could see some of these movies in theaters uh, if the opportunity allowed itself in a safe and convenient fashion. But as far as the experience, I mean, uh, it was overwhelming at times. Absolutely. Because I think they made about, I want to say like somewhere between 80 to hundred movies available to me throughout the week and a half that I was available to uh, watch TIFF stuff. So mm-hmm. I also like really only got like less than half of the films and that's me like, trying to watch as much as possible at, at a given time. So like I watched as much as I could and I only got to half and that's like not even counting like uh Annote and then like American Utopia and like a few others that were like kind of more high profile that I didn't get yeah. an opportunity to ac- have access to, which is unfortunate because I wanted to see those films, but I was still happy with what I got. And obviously I'm very grateful and I'm still very confused as far as how <laughs> I had this chance, but um, uh, well, yeah, we just went with it. Sure. I mean, yeah, I I mean, yeah, I'm not going to question. I'm not going to look a gift mouth, a gift horse in the mouth, (laughs) horse in the mouth. Yeah. Yeah, um, But in any case, yeah, I mean, very surreal, obviously. And it it did feel like a very 2020 experience by and large. But um, for someone like me who really doesn't get to go to too many film festivals, I was definitely very uh, excited and grateful for this opportunity for sure. 
Glad you were able to do it. So I, I'm curious, then, how did you prioritize some of these films? Because that's a lot to choose from. And it mm -hmm. sounds like you had to make some decisions, not just based on what's available and what might have some buzz, but also what you can fit in the day. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, so every movie was made available to me for like a 48 hour period and they became available at different days. So most of the stuff became available like that first weekend. So that was definitely the toughest time as far as just figuring out like, you know, obviously like you have 12 movies that are going to expire in like 12 hours. And it's like, what are you going to watch and what are you going to pick? And ultimately, I mean, some of them are no question. Like, obviously, I'm going to watch Nomadland. I'm going to watch One Night in Miami because those are big films and they're war contenders or future war contenders. And they have all this buzz and they're getting great reviews. And it's like, OK, obviously, I'm going to make time for those films because they seem very important and they seem worthwhile. As far as the other ones, it just varied on different factors. Like if the plot seemed interesting to me or if like it was a genre I hadn't really watched yet or if it was like, a country I hadn't really watched because I was definitely trying to make an effort to, you know, watch different genres, watch documentaries in addition to narrative films and then watch films from like different countries. So it wasn't like the same thing over and over again. That was definitely something I was trying to avoid was watching the same type of films over and over again because I didn't want that. I didn't want the experience to become too monotonous as, if I could help it. Uh, because obviously I'm going to most of these films blind, so it's kind of hard to tell what's going to happen and what movies I'm going to get by the end of them. But uh, as far as the experience of choosing the films, um, a lot of it just came down to like what seemed the most intriguing to me, what I thought would fit my personal interests or taste, and uh, also just choosing films that if they were from a director I'd seen before and you know if I was interested in their work and I was like, oh, OK, this is their next film. I want to check this out. That definitely had deciding factor as well. But it was a lot of different Makes things sense. and ultimately it was just uh, shooting in the dark and hoping for the best by and large. It sounds like it worked out now. Yeah, this seems like a decent case scenario for a festival that, you know, it usually, of course, takes place in Canada. And we kind of, you know, didn't say this because it is pretty obvious that the reason this is virtual is because of the pandemic, which, yes, is happening in Canada as well as America, as most of our listeners know, especially the ones overseas. And yeah, for a festival that takes place primarily online, it sounds like there were still a lot of films that really broke through. We're going to get to them. And I'm curious, too, about I, there were some in-person screenings, actually. Got to yeah, make that pretty clear. A, they had like social distancing. Yeah. And yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I will say, yeah, it is fascinating to hear about what the experience was like for you because, you know, we've talked about this on the show before ourselves and with people who have, have attended other festivals that, yeah, big factor of the festival experience it's not just watching the movies it's watching them and you know in a movie theater like you said with the talent there but then also it's a lot of standing in line and talking to other people about the films and getting your expectations raised and there's a lot of things that you lose in the virtual format i imagine i assume because yeah, it's good. there's something in the air at a film festival, and it makes me wonder if some of these films that you're talking about and that other people who are reviewing these films are talking about, maybe they would have been more positive or more negative if they had been in the location and, for example, been forced to sit through the entire movie in a screening, right? Yeah. So Or waited like two hours, yeah. Right, you wait like hours yeah. and hours, someone's hyped it up for you, and then you watch it and you're like, what was that about? Come on. That wasn't yeah. that great. You know, it, it, there is something kind of lost there, but it sounds like something was also gained because you were able to watch so much. And it sounds like you were able to base your decisions around 
being able to watch things that like, for example, Nomadland, I don't know if I could have seen that if you and I, let's say you and I had gone to the actual festival on the ground, mm-hmm. there's a good chance we wouldn't have been able to get in <laughs> just because right. of the limit of how many seats there would have been, you know, in, in a normal TIFF uh, scenario. So it, it is it is interesting to me, though, that you were able to watch those films and fit them in and then oh, also yeah. fit in other films that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise had time for. You could have risked seeing because you would have missed something else. Yeah, I mean, I definitely for that film and uh, One Night in Miami the whole time, I was just like, am I really getting access to this? Like, am I actually uh, <laughs> am I really going to have a chance to watch this film? Just because it's like such a high profile film that I totally expected at any point to be like, yeah, wait, we gave access to him. No, take that away from him. Cause that's yeah. kind of what they did <laughs> for American Utopia. Cause at one point they had it on my little thing and then it went away mysteriously. I don't know what happened, but I was kind of expecting that to happen for other films. But uh, so far as I can tell, they didn't. So I don't know how that happened, but um, I was grateful that I had a chance to see Nomadland and one night in Miami and a bunch of these films for sure. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. Let's start talking about the films and we can start with two films that you saw that I've actually already had the opportunity to see. And that's because they premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. They're now playing at TIFF. I'm curious if either of them has been changed or edited in any way. I doubt that's the case for one of them, Truffle Hunters. The other one, Falling... I want to believe they did something with that film, considering a lot of the negative reaction from myself included out of that film. Obviously, my complaints with it had a lot to do with the film just in general. It's not something that I don't don't think could have been fixed all that much by editing or anything like that. But do you know anything about that? Do you know if they made any changes to Falling if you want to get started? Yeah, I mean, this is the Viggo Mortensen film, if we didn't specify before. Um I don't believe so. I mean, I haven't seen your cut of it, so I don't I don't know what would have been different, or what would have been taken out or added in. But as far as I can tell, it's the same movie. Right. But OK, so following, we both have seen it now. Like you said, this is the Viggo Mortensen film. The basic synopsis is that we follow Mortensen in general throughout his life, mainly him as an adult grappling with his father, played by uh, Lance uh, Erickson and Erickson. I believe so. Yeah. I mean, you're asking me for names. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to make sure I get his last name right. But yeah, I believe that's correct. His father is this very cantankerous, grumpy, racist, bigoted, terrible man. And we sort of get flashbacks that inform their father son relationship. Uh, there are elements of this that ring as either autobiographical or biographical in the sense that Mortensen is grabbing from other experiences that have been related to him. But apparently there are, there are some personal touches from his own life. He has added to this film. Now this is also uh, Laura Lenny is in this as well. This is a movie that I, I really did not like at Sundance. I've already talked about it. I just thought that it was a miserable, miserable experience just because of like this onslaught of just negativity. And just even in the beginning of 2020 before the COVID-19 thing happened, I was just not in the mood to experience a film this dour for the, for these reasons, I guess. I don't feel like I got anything out of that movie aside from a few chuckles and some delight I got out of the childhood sequences, specifically the one involving a duck. That, that, that was that was some fun. But yeah, Will, what did, what did you think of Falling? Did you uh, fall for it? Uh, no, I mean, ultimately, my opinion of it isn't too much higher than yours. I think I was a little bit more receptive to it because I appreciate what 
Vigo Mortensen was trying to do, which is making it very, uh, I guess, un- unconventional in a sense, but more like, I guess, straightforward kind of uh, to the gut family drama where it's exploring like what is one's connection to or one's responsibility to their like ancestors and also exploring like what makes of a, like your loved ones and like what makes of their relationship, even if they've been detestable to you throughout your life. And it's like, I get this is a very personal film to some extent because I know it has to deal with something with Viggo Mortensen's own family life and his own parenthood and his own relationship to his own parents. But I don't exactly know to the full extent, like how much is this tied to his life? I don't want to assume as much, but I, I think I appreciate what's trying to do. I just don't think the execution fully comes together because he's trying to do a bunch of different things, particularly by bouncing between the father's character, who I believe that the actor Lance uh, Hendrickson, um, he gives a great performance. I, I I know you weren't as crazy on it, but I think he really gets into it. I, it can be a little bit one note as far as the character is concerned, but I think that performance is very good. Um, as far as the movie itself, I think it tries to bounce between his perception and his like mental deterioration in some interesting ways, but I just don't think that perspective in addition to exploring Viggo Mortensen's side of things, which I think ultimately weirdly gets short staffed, even though he's like the writer director. Um, I feel like his perspective kind of gets lost because it's ultimately so focused on this very bleak and mean spirited character that I, I feel like the intent is there and I can appreciate what he's doing. I think maybe more than some audiences will, but I didn't fully connect with it because I just don't think Viggo Mortensen as a director is quite there yet. Like I think because this is his first time directing a film, I don't think he has the full confidence and the full assurance to really pull off something like this in his first attempt as a director, but I admire the intent and I think there is something here. I just don't fully think it comes out. Now, before we get into the second film that we both have seen, I do want to bring up, cause I forgot to mention this before one thing that another thing, that is extremely unique about TIFF. And I'll, I'll set the stage here. Usually, and I kind of mentioned this, the the big four festivals, they, they're all trying to land these big film premieres. And the reason is because, you know, I'm talking about Venice, Telluride, and New York. They're, they're trying to become the festival that has the most awards contenders, whether they be for Golden Globes or the big one, Oscars. And they're usually competing with each other. They're usually, the organizers are trying to figure out like, okay, I'm going to try to acquire this one for a festival release or this one. And there's a lot of competition involved. But what's so unique about this year is that they actually kind of work together a little bit to make this whole thing, because it's all virtual, more accessible to people. For example, the Cannes Film Festival was totally canceled. And so some of the films that premiered here at TIFF were supposed to come out at Cannes, right? And I think that is an interesting, almost like a silver lining out of this, that it, it seems to me like there was so much more collaboration between the festivals this year in the midst of a crisis. And so I want to shout that out because I think that that is definitely something I found pretty uh, enlightening to see. Yeah, I mean, they're always usually pretty competitive too. So it is kind of heartwarming to see that as well. But I do think, um, I think there was some version of cons. It was just a very, very like insider thing where it's just like, a small group of people either virtually or in person got a chance to watch films. It was mostly mostly just for like distributing purposes. So I think there was a version of cons, but not a public version as far as I can I tell. feel like whenever you say cons instead of can, I'm just, I feel like you're just trying to spite me. Cause you know, it irks me. I, uh, I do not do it intentionally, but um, <laughs> yeah, as far as the, the uh, films I saw, yeah, a lot of them I had that had the cons banner, cans banner, 
that um it's just can talking cans, just yeah, can 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 <laughs> um yeah they did a lot of them had the cans banner so i was like oh okay like i thought that wasn't happening this year that didn't happen this year and then i had to remember like oh yeah there was there was like some version of it where people where movies got accepted they just didn't really play in the traditional format but it was very nice to see that going back to falling real quick i did find it interesting at least from my experience um that you know like a film like that like it, at sundance widely got panned like most people didn't like it and i noticed that uh, tiff i don't know if it's because of expectations or the reviews but it seemed like it got a little bit of a warmer response like it didn't get glowing reviews from our why i seen but i did see more people more receptive to the film at tiff than they were at uh at sundance this year that's why i'm wondering if they made any changes because yeah it definitely was not a warm response at sundance and it could just be a matter of the way people i think saw it's just it. expectations i think it's just yeah. a matter of expectations honestly that's my prediction that's a good point yeah definitely a possibility the other film that we both have seen, this one, another one that premiered at Sundance, and this one got a really great response. Uh, it's a documentary called The Truffle Hunters. It's it's a film that I, you know, look, I don't want to say anything bad about Truffle Hunters. I don't think it's a bad movie. You hate I the Truffle just Hunters. Did not. I just found the truffles to be a little undercooked. I I, I don't know what it was. I think it, it's a story, a documentary about these funny, silly old men who they and their dogs go and they find truffles and they have to grapple with a very competitive and shrinking economy. And there are some enlightening things about the documentary in terms of how truffles are found and just some of the very strange mores that come with it. I just have to say there was something about truffle hunters. I, I don't like to say this about films because I think it's a, it's a very simplistic way to judge a movie. But in this case, I just have to be honest. I was very bored during the truffle hunters. I'm sorry, Will Ashton. I know you really enjoyed this documentary. Go ahead and prove me wrong and, and tell the listeners why I need to hush up. Yeah. You were, you were trifling instead of truffling, I suppose. But um, <laughs> sure. in any case, uh, yeah, I just wanted to get that pun there. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I was through the roof in love with this movie. Cause I think, when I was talking to you about it, I was like halfway through it and I was like, John, what are you talking about? This is delightful. Like, this is such a fun documentary. The, like, And I had seen at that point, like so many like depressing and oppressive films about like people in very dire situations, like very sure. uh, like at best bittersweet outcomes. And that's very that's like, very much at best situations. And um, so, like, you know, seeing a movie like just a bunch of pleasant old French European guys just doing their jobs and uh you know ha- playing with their dogs and stuff it was it was very you know lighthearted in a way that i appreciated but i do think as the film went along i was kind of of the mind where i'm like okay where is this leading up to is it just really just going to be a very slice of life <laughs> film yes like that's it, it and it's like okay like i mean i you say that as a negative way i think i appreciate that but it did it prevent me from being like oh this is like an amazing documentary like what an enlightening experience i think i was ultimately expecting like a bigger payoff at the end and I guess like the movie just kind of wraps up in a way. It's like, oh, yeah, like, you know, that's just what you need to know. <laughs> yeah, this is all the footage we got. Yeah, like it it does. Fe- it does kind of feel like a short film that was extended to like a feature length uh, film, which, you know, I mean, doesn't make for the most rewarding viewing experience. But as far as a movie itself, I think it's fine for what it is. I really appreciate the style that's filmed in where it's like. Uh, you know, very like reserved and like not intrusive to a point where like it seems like the people involved forget that there's like cameramen and they're just kind of doing their their thing which as a, from a documentary standpoint i really like that approach yeah 
and I like that style because it feels more authentic. But um, it does kind of feel like it's reserved at times to the point where it's like we don't really get to know them fully. Like we don't really get their perspective beyond just like what they tell like their wives or like what they say to a priest or something. And, you know, maybe that that limits the experience in some way. But um, as far as the movie itself, I found it very charming and endearing. And I could definitely see this one finding an audience, but I don't think it's going to be a wide audience. It's not going to be like a Marsha Penguins where it's like a documentary that goes out into like the ether and it's like a huge thing. But I think people who tend to like these things are going to like it a lot. And it is a very charming film, in my opinion. All right, we're going to move into a different segment where we talk about the, the films that are most likely going to be up for a big awards campaign, the ones that either are going to be nominated for awards or we expect the studios are going to push for a campaign. Now, these, of course, are just the films Will has seen. And I'd say two of the ones, Will, that you didn't see that had some awards expectations one of them probably doesn't at this point. I'm not sure. But the first one you've already mentioned is American Utopia, which was the opening film of the festival. This is the new Spike Lee film. And I'd, have you heard anything about whether or not that does have a good chance of awards or at this point? Uh, awards wise, I don't know. I mean, I do know that it's getting a lot of really good reviews and I don't know if it'll be up for any Oscars. I guess it's an HBO film, so it might be up for Emmys next year. But, um, you know, I mean. As far as it being like a concert experience, I, I I don't know what category that fits into. Is that documentary I'd say, or is that? I'd say a Golden Globe would be more likely to that point, right? It, like you said, it's an HBO original. It's going to be streaming on HBO Max. I, I don't see Oscars for it at all, but I'm seeing extremely positive reviews to the point yeah. where I could see a Golden Globe in its future for sure. I mean, and I'm really excited to see the film as well because um, I saw the live version of the show. I saw American Utopia on stage and it's one of the best theater experiences I've ever had. And wow. I, I imagine it's going to translate really well, especially with Spike Lee directing it. But um, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it myself, so I can't really comment on the quality of it. But as far as, you know, words consideration, I imagine based on the buzz, that's going to get some response, be it Emmys or Golden Globes. Like I said, I don't know if it qualifies for Oscars, so it probably won't be too late for Emmys. <laughs> well, I mean, Emmys as far as like 2021. Which I yeah, I don't know if that's it, it would it would have to really campaign hard having that much time removed. Yeah, I don't know if that I don't think awards is what they're really concerned with right now. Sure. I think I think they just want to produce this movie or put it out there at least. I mean, it seemed like they they put it into TIFF because they just wanted to get the conversation rolling. And I think it's more about promoting HBO Max at this point because yeah, it does kind of so. seem like they need a bigger push right now. Like it seems like HBO Max is like it's finding an audience, but it's also like there's like a point now where people are kind of like, well, what original content do you have? And at this point, they don't really have that much beyond like American Pickle and like I'm Pregnant and a few films we talked about. And so um, it does seem like they kind of need to push more original content to stand out compared to Netflix and Hulu and whatnot. So I could see it as a way of like, you know, getting audiences invested in buying or having a subscription to HBO Max. But I don't really see the awards consideration fully panning out. But that's not to say it's not deserving. Sure. On a side note, I, I'll say, uh, even though the Max originals haven't been so far like really rolling, and I, that's because it's a new streaming service, I would say. I feel like they are lucky because they have things like Lovecraft Country, they have Raised by Wolves, and all these other things that do feel like, uh, because they have the HBO brand, I, I always feel like there's something new on Max. So that said, I'd say that HBO Max is in a pretty good position, but that's a different conversation. Sure. The other film, I, I don't see maybe getting any awards consideration because I, I think people had expectations for it, 
because my goodness, it's a period piece with famous actresses and they're lesbians. I mean, this just tends to be automatic. Okay, we're being a little facetious. It's becoming a bit of a trope. And that film is yeah. Ammonite, the new Francis Lee film. And it, honestly, yes, it. a lot of people have already said it. It is sort of becoming a little bit of a crutch, a little bit of a, hey, if we showcase the gay and lesbian experience in a time when it wasn't nearly as acceptable as it no is today. <laughs> Very well put. Uh, yeah. You, so you didn't see Ammonite. They didn't make this one available to you, huh? No, unfortunately not. It was actually one of the ones I was most intrigued to see just because of the award potential and obviously because of Cherche Ronan and Kate Winslet. Um, right. I was, you know, I was definitely intrigued to see it, but unfortunately I didn't have access to it. Sure. So it's apparently no portrait of a lady on fire in the sense that it doesn't in any way push this sort of genre or this sort of yeah. storyline it just sort of what i'm hearing is that it's safe it's cookie cutter it, it does True. feel like it's trying to win awards not really say so. something um of course we haven't seen the film so we can't judge it ourselves yeah i was gonna say i mean i did i did hear good things i didn't hear like glowing things but i did hear like some people are like it was good or pretty good so i mean i'm not hearing that's bad but i'm not hearing yet that it's going to be like a uh tour de force for the oscars or anything like that all right, let's talk about the films that you did see that yeah. you expect will be big awards contenders. I'm very curious. I don't. I know a few of them probably you're going to mention, but not all of them. Yeah, I mean, well, obviously the big one, and I mentioned this already, but it deserves to be mentioned, is Nomadland, which is, I believe right now, the front runner for Best Picture, which is the Chloe Zhao film. Yes. Uh, she previously made The Writer, and then she's going to make The Eternals for Marvel. Uh, I believe that was going to come out this year, but now it got pushed back to next year. Yep. Um, this is the new Francis McDormand movie and it's basically what everyone was saying was just like wow we really kind of blew it by giving Francis McDormand her second Oscar for uh, three billboards <laughs> outside having Missouri yeah. because like this is the movie where she deserves like nothing against that performance I mean I had kind of more mixed feelings that, about it than you did but I mean you know as good as she was in this she's even better in this film Um, and uh, do you need me to go into like the plot or anything or just go into my general thoughts on the movie itself if you want to do like a one sentence synopsis just to set okay. the stage, I mean, the big thing is that you've already mentioned it stars Francis McDormand. It also was produced by her and a few others and including yeah. Chloe Zhao. So and I think it's based on a book. Oh, uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, it's a woman in her like late 60s. She's a widow and she basically just lives in this uh, trailer. Um, yeah, just a trailer that she has revamped and basically is used as her home for, uh, you know, several years at this point and she goes throughout the country cross country to like basically just pick up odd jobs as a way to uh you know keep herself employed and keep herself active in an economy that is not very forgiving or very understanding and we just kind of follow her throughout this whole process basically a year span where we kind of are flying a wall to her different reactions and her different interactions with uh different people and a lot of them similar to the writer are not professional actors or actors at all uh, with the exception of France McDormand and David Strahand and a few others, it's primarily people who are, you know, just uh, hardworking average Americans. And that does give it an authenticity that I think a lesser director that might those performances might have seemed a little bit more like stand out as like, oh, you know, like, well, that's not the real actor and this is the real actor. But um, as far as Chloe Zhao's uh, direction, which is very uh, graceful and very poetic and lyrical in its approach. Um, it, it does flow together pretty seamlessly in a way that does make it feel very vibrant and authentic in a way that I think is really going to resonate with both just general audiences and with um, 
movie lovers and like cinephiles in a way that does feel like a perfect marriage in that response as far as like just appealing to general audiences as far as just being like a connecting story with the very, you know, down to earth character that's, you know, very reserved in some respects, but not to the point where I feel like they'll be alienated by it, but also at the same time feeling very enriching as far as just capturing a portrait of a character who's like, you know, not someone we can fully read, but we can understand enough and we're invested enough in through McDormand's performance that it does become a very uh, impactful and uh, engaging film. And uh, I totally believe the uh, buzz and the critical claim so far has been warranted. I I have to say that was an even more impressive run on sentence than the one in Palm Springs. Very, very well done. All right. (laughs) But yes. uh, Yeah. I mean, this is the big film. I mean, it won the golden lion. It's, been acquired by Searchlight, which is a good sign that, you know, that's Searchlight and Disney are going to have quite a lot of money to put behind this film, getting an Oscars push. It's going to be, I think, hitting theaters at least limited. We're not sure yet by, uh, I think it's the current date is December 4th. So uh, mm-hmm. the heist, yeah. the the myths of award season for sure. And I've heard uh, that Zhao's screenplay and um, as director, she might get some awards. Uh, contention, including McDormand's performance, of course. So, yeah, this sounds like one that we are going to be hearing more and more about as mm. the months drag on. Yeah, I mean, I would—I don't know if it's my favorite film of the year. It's definitely my favorite of the festival, but it might arguably be, be the best film I've seen this year. All right. Well, then, what if that's your favorite one? What are some others though? That uh, some dark horses, if you will, that also might be getting some awards buzz. Um, well, I definitely imagine, as I mentioned, One Night in Miami is going to get considered, certainly for the awards uh, conversation. Um, this is the film Regina King directed. It's her directorial yeah. debut. I believe she's directed a lot of TV prior to this, but this is her first feature film. Uh, and it's based on a play. Uh, I forget the writer's name. I'll have to look it up. It is, uh, oh, Kemp Powers. Yeah. Who I think does the screenplay as well, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And um for the most part, it's all in one central location in one night, as the title suggests. Uh, and it is uh, a combination of four historic figures. And that would be uh, Malcolm X, uh, Muhammad Ali, at this point known as Cactus Clay, uh, Jim Brown, and uh, Sam Cooke, the musician. And okay. it's them at very pivotal points in their lives. Like Each of them are at a point where they're trying to come to terms with their identity with their career prospects and who they are as a person and as a professional. And obviously the movie is meant to be like a kind of round table discussion where each of them emboldens or empowers the one to move forward with their next steps. You know, with Muhammad Ali, it's assuming his uh, Muslim identity with uh, Malcolm X. It's, you know, taking the next step and kind of figuring out who he is as a Muslim or who he is, who he is as a person beyond being a Muslim. I mean, and uh, Sam Cooke, obviously, it's him finding his own voice as a musician beyond just like doing what the producers want out of him. And then Jim Brown, it's him moving on from being not just a football player, but an actor and a professional in other fields. So it, it's very much a um, actor showcase film. And I think that's where it stands out the most. I, I don't think it's necessarily flashy in its filmmaking approach. I don't think it's like a film where it's like, oh, like, wow, like, you know, what amazing cinematography, what amazing shots, even though I do think it is visually striking for a film that's primarily in a hotel room. <laughs> I think it is uh, to King's credit that the film is as visually engaging as it ultimately is given the limited uh, scope of it. But ultimately, yeah, it's mostly a showcase for these four performers. And I think the one that's going to probably be talked about the most 
for understandable reasons is Leslie Odom Jr. as Sam Cooke because it's the showiest performance of them. Yeah. Not showy in a bad way, just that like it's the one that stands out the most because it's like the most of a performance. Sounds like this might be another Hamilton situation where Odom Jr. kind of just outperforms everybody in terms of like just theatricality or it's kind of the the opposite in that like i, I feel like with hamilton it was like his performance was like more reserved right like i see okay. Amber, right you know i mean like because like the show out was intended to be lin manuel miranda for that because it's like you know it's his musical but with this it's like the opposite where it's like uh kingsley ben adir is the guy who plays malcolm x and his performance is the one that stood out to me because it was kind of like the aaron burr of this situation where it's like, you know, Malcolm X is not someone who is like traditionally, you know, very vocal or, or emotional outside of, you know, his speeches. So as a person, it's like him kind of hang, uh, honed in and being like kind of more uh, uh, closed off with his emotions. And, you know, when he does kind of e- emote or react to things, it does have more of a punch, I feel. But um, I would say, you know, all four of the performances stand out or have time to shine, I'd say, uh, as far as the performers themselves. And I mean... Like I said, I imagine Lizzie Odom's the one that's going to stand out for voters. Traditionally, that's like the type of performance that stands out also because he has to sing a lot, you know, that that also gives him some boost. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's not to say that like the film is like revolutionary as far as its approach. I think it plays out as most people are expecting it to. But it's just a very strong script with a lot of strong performances. And King definitely brings a lot to it as a director, especially the first time director, where um, it's not only very engaging entertaining film but it, it does you know obviously speak a lot to quote unquote the now <laughs> and uh it, it's obviously going to be a very timely and uh poignant film in many respects so you know not like the most subtle film or like the most uh nuanced film in any respect and not trying to be either but uh ultimately as it went along it, it was easily among the most entertaining and uh, one of the ones i got the most out of for sure so amazon acquired this back in july which definitely tells me, because that was back when uh, Venice happened, that definitely tells me with Amazon, they're trying to get back to their rewards flavor. I I think they've struggled in the past few years. I think 2016 was like the height of them just coming out the gate with tons of awards-heavy films. And this definitely seems like their latest attempt to make good on that. And I'm definitely interested, for all the reasons you mentioned, the talent involved, especially uh, Kingsley Benadir. Funny enough, I, I remember we were talking about Max Originals and one of the first ones was Love Life with Anna Kendrick. And he only oh, shows yeah. up in one episode of that. Oh yeah. But he makes hmm. an impression. He does. He, I didn't like that character <laughs> to be totally honest, but I remember just thinking this this guy in that show, that I, there was something about him where like, yeah, you could tell he's really good. Like he, you can tell he has, like he's holding back <laughs> in this role. We've seen him in other things. Like I think he was in like that King Arthur movie and a couple other uh, smaller roles. But yeah, I, I definitely want to keep my eye on both him and Odom Jr. and a lot of the actors involved in this. One thing I'll, I'll say about Regina King, I think, so this is her first, like you said, it's her first feature film. She did do a TV movie once. Um, did you ever see Let the Church Say Amen? I didn't. That's from I have not. A yeah, while, this is the while first, yeah, this is the first thing I've seen her direct, as far as I can tell. She hasn't directed too much. In terms of TV, she's uh, directed a few episodes of some shows. I, I remember. I think I've seen, the only one I've seen is, uh, her. she did an episode of Shameless a few years ago. That's okay. pretty good. <laughs> but yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen her other stuff. I think she directed a lot of Southland, that show, from a while back. I think she was in that as well. I think that's primarily what her directorial work is. 
I think that, yeah, it was the first thing she directed or one of the first things, but she didn't direct a lot of Southland. She directed um, a few episodes of Scandal, I want to say, and she directed a bunch of uh, Being Mary Jane, but I think she only did Hmm. one or maybe two episodes of Southland, I want to say. Okay. But that said, uh, she clearly, she has a lot of directing experience, so it's it's really great to see her putting that into uh, a feature film because it seems like she's definitely more than more than capable for sure i mean mm-hmm. i don't know i haven't seen this movie yet but it sounds like it is pretty impressionable oh yeah for sure i mean i don't want to be remiss and uh ignore uh, eli gore is the actor who plays uh Kakis clay aka muhammad ali and then also aldis hoge is uh the actor who plays jim brown both are very good as well i don't mean to overlook their performances but um yeah for me it was mostly um kings kingsley Bella Deer, who's the, the performance that stood out to me. And I think Leslie Odom Jr., while it's very good, is probably the one that's going to be like the big awards one, even though I thought he might have been the weakest of the four, in my opinion. But that's not to say he's bad. Just I, It's just that the other three are, are as good as they are. I, I like that she tapped a lot of people who are from TV shows, right? It's like as Eli Gorey, we've probably seen him in things like Ballers, right? And uh, The 100. And then uh, Aldous Hodge, I think I think he's been in some movies. I think he was in like straight out of Compton and hidden figures, but he's probably better known for like leverage. Right. So yeah, I, I I appreciate Regina King clearly has a respect for television and people in television being really great actors, because it sounds like that might be helping this show a little bit, have like a different, maybe like a different edge, but okay. That's one night in in Miami. Uh, What else, what else made a a good impression on you this year? Uh, well, one of the big ones is uh, one of the first ones I saw, which is Shiva Baby. And I said one of the big ones because uh, it's only, I think, like 79 minutes long. <laughs> Can we assume this one's for the kids? Uh, no, it's well, it's not like inappropriate per se, but I wouldn't show it to a suggestive audience, I guess. I, I'm just referencing a uh, classic cinemaholics uh, <laughs> mess around. Oh, of course, yeah. 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 Um, this is the directorial debut or the feature directorial debut of uh, Emma Sel- Seligman. Oh, Emma Seligman. Seligman. Yeah. Who uh, previously directed a short film based on this premise, which is a uh, college graduate, or I guess a near college graduate, uh, is basically bouncing between um, her family responsibilities and then making money on the side through some, uh, I guess, promiscuous ways. And uh, she has to attend a Shiva for a family member she doesn't really know. And I don't even think she ever really learns who it is throughout the process of the film, which is a pretty funny reoccurring joke uh, throughout the film. Um, but um, basically, another film where it's all pretty much centralized to one location. We're in a house, obviously, because it's a Shiva. And we're she's surrounded by all these people, all these family members she doesn't really know too well or that she hasn't connected with in a while. And it is a film that is... a. Uh, Primarily just capturing that feeling of anxiety where it's like, you know, everyone there and they all know you, but you don't know them enough to really fully connect to somebody. And you also have your own social insecurities that you kind of want to be in your own place, but you can't because there's just so many people around and you just, you know, it, it ha- builds that pressure of like having to acknowledge everybody, but just also want to be dealing with your own things, which is a very kind of like mother kind of thing where it's like that, that scene in like the midpoint mother where it's just like all these people are coming into the house and like, she just like wants to tend to everybody, but like everything is going wrong at once. Uh, it's kind of like that. If it was a Shiva <laughs> and a dark <laughs> comedy at the same time. Um, and, uh, it's quite good. I, 
I don't want to oversell in as far as like it's a very simple premise. And it's like I think it's just a film where it's like you, you basically know what you expect. It's another film where it's like it plays out more or less how you would expect it to. But I think it's just so well made and so accomplished for a first time filmmaker with a really standout central performance from Rachel Sinout that um I, I just think it really works and it's really funny it's probably my favorite screenplay of any film i've seen at the festival just because it's so wow. sharp and so quick and just so consistently funny and so uh it's so good at just capturing this like sense of mood and tone where it's like it almost plays out like a horror movie even though it's not it's kind of same with like the nest where it's like it's using horror aesthetics to tell a story that's basically just a dark comedy <laughs> but it's doing it in a way that feels like a horror movie even though it's not and uh, yeah, it's it's quite good. And also stars uh, a lot of talented actors, including Molly Gordon, who's seen in quite a few things. Um, Fred Melman, who's an actor I love. Uh, Cy Abelman from Serious Man. And then Deanna Aragon, who uh, are all very good as well. Diana so, Agron. Agron. There you go. I, you know, I am an easy sell, Will, when it comes to featured debuts that are comedies that the director wrote and directed that are really short and just simple because what you tend to get with directors when they write their own first film, they, I don't know, they tend to be very stuffed and very like overcomplicated. So that's a reason I've been looking forward to this one quite a bit since I first heard about it, just because it does seem like I know exactly what I want to get from this film. And it sounds like I will get that nothing more, nothing less. So, and one of those things is I, I'm a big champion of Molly Gordon. I think that she was really, really good in book smarts. And I think that we're hopefully we're going to see way more from her in the coming years for sure. Yeah, I mean, this might be my favorite performance of hers that I've seen, but I'm I'm trying to remember what else I've seen. Better than Good Boys? <laughs> uh, yeah, she's not she's not bad in Good Boys. I mean, I liked her uh, in that. Life of the um, Party as well. What was that? Oh, yeah, Life of the Party. Well, I mean, I don't know if that's anyone's finest hour per se, but um, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> uh, Especially, you know, Billy that, and Jacobs. Yeah, but I mean, that was a film that she was in. Um, but in any case, yeah, no, I think you'll like this one a lot. I, I'd be very curious to see this as, with a double feature of um, Yes, God, Yes, even though they're fairly different films as far as <laughs> different like religions, too. But, you know, like, well, yeah, that. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, it they're both, you know, female directed films, female led films. They're under 80 minutes and they're about coming of age and, you know, insecurities of that age in a way that I think would make it very intriguing to see those two back to back. But um, yeah, I would definitely recommend this one for sure. I think it's kind of great how you're, so far your three favorite films that you've talked about or three of them are all directed by women chloe zao regina king and now um seglum uh, seligman I, I i struggle with it too sorry yeah i mean um i i didn't do this uh intentionally it just kind of worked out that i think a third of the movies i end up seeing were directed or co-directed by women which you know made me happy uh to see i i definitely appreciate tiff having so many films directed by women uh, available and streaming for this uh for this opportunity and i you know they definitely made a point at every uh film to make a uh make a stand they're like yeah we are supporting female filmmakers we want to get their voices out there and i think they showed that i think that is the case all right what do you have next for us will ash what's another awards contender that you think uh, we are going to be checking out pretty soon um well i don't know if it's going to be an awards contender tender but i definitely think it's going to be vying for awards which is piece of a woman which is the um new film from the director of uh i think it was a white god they did the dog movie if i remember correctly so yeah hard to pronounce the name but uh you're talking about cornell uh i'm gonna try mandrusco 
I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, your guess is good as mine. <laughs> All right, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he also directed uh, Johanna and, uh, like you said, White God. Yeah, I mean, White God's like the big one that he uh, he made, I know. But um, this one, uh, it was a big film, I think, at Venice where it premiered before this. And the big thing that was coming out of this was like, oh, Vanessa Kirby is a, you know, one of the front runners now for best actress because she won the award there for best actress. And, uh, you know, obviously with the pedigree involved, it also stars uh, Shia LaBeouf as well as Ellen Bernstein and Sarah Snook from Succession and Molly Parker and Benny Safdie for some reasons in this yeah, as well. one of the Safdie brothers. But uh, also, which surprised uh, me. I heard Jimmy Fails from Last Black Man in San Francisco. Is oh, in yes. This. Yeah, he is as well. I'm That definitely has me at attention. Also, uh, a comedian I really like, uh, yeah. Eliza Schlesinger. I was just about to mention, yeah, she's in it, and I don't exactly know why. <laughs> uh, not, not to say that her performance is bad or anything. No, it's because... She doesn't she's her character is not funny. Like it's not meant to be funny. It's the the concerned sister and she's only really in the film for like 10 minutes uh in total and like she's mostly there to huh, radiate okay. concern. And I don't exactly know why they picked her for the part. I mean, you know, maybe she just wanted to try a dramatic part, you know, this was like an easy way to kind of uh, well not easy, but like a uh prominent way to do so. I don't exactly know why she was involved, but you know, she doesn't do a bad job. Um, but as far as the movie itself, uh, so I don't know what to give away. That's potentially a spoiler, but the film, it follows a married couple played by Shia LaBeouf and Vanessa Kirby, and they are in their like late trimester or whatever of uh, pregnancy. She's about to give birth. And uh, at one point during dinner, during a like 23 minute single take her water breaks and the um what's the term for like the woman that comes in for house births um oh a midwife midwife the midwife they want uh is available so another one comes in and there are a bunch of complications and a tragedy unfolds which uh obviously sparks a lot of uh, media national concern and it causes a very grief stricken period for the couple involved uh, Shia LaBeouf's character is a recovering alcoholic who is uh, having trouble staying sober during this period. And Vanessa Kirby is in this like very intensely grief period where she's trying to figure out like, you know, with the, the um, midwife potentially on trial for this whole thing. And also, you know, her family members are trying to figure out the next step. And she's like trying to divorce herself from the situation by like kind of emotionally removing herself from it. And her family is constantly just like, you know, you have to kind of acknowledge this. You have to like make some peace with this. And she's not willing to do that. And it doesn't really make for a fun time at the movies <laughs> as far as uh, what it's going for. And I, I am surprised that Netflix picked it up because uh, as I was telling you before, I imagine there's going to be a couple later down the road who are like, I don't know about this. I'm thinking of ending things. It's a little more serious than I thought it was <laughs> going to be. Hey, Shia LaBeouf's in a new movie. <laughs> with the girl from uh Hobbs and Shaw. This oh, could be look, fun. It's Molly Parker from House of Cards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's in it as well. Um yeah, it's like, yeah, this could be fun. And, you know, they they get an even more intense kind of grueling film. Uh <laughs> as far as the movie itself, I mean, I will say the opening of this as intended is probably one of the best things I've seen at the festival as far as the like intended 23-minute take. It's just incredible filmmaking incredible acting i mean that's easily where vanessa kirby's performance shines the most uh you know Shia LaBeouf really is always very good at like getting you in a situation that's very intense and believing it 
because it always feels like in any moment Shia Booth is going to snap and like, you know, things are going to start happening. And he's very good at uh, emulating that sense of tension and that sense of uncertainty and uh, dread. But the movie itself, um, as far as the second half of the film or like the later half of the film, it never gets bad. But I do think that's where the more like melodramatic moments come in. And that's where it feels like it is kind of going for that kind of more like overdone, like kind of like overpronounced emotion of it, where it just kind of feels a little bit broader and a little bit more like theatrical than I think the first half, which is a lot better, I think, at communicating the emotional intensity of it in like ways that are very, both very like stark and shocking, but also kind of reserved and moody. Uh, I, I think those moments stand out to me a little bit more than the second half, where I think it, it does kind of go into like your traditional movie mode. But I mean, there are a lot of comparisons here being made to like Cassavetti's style and i think that's not totally unwarranted because it does kind of have that ferocity to it and that that kind of like uh free-flowing edge to it especially with a lot of the long takes that are seen throughout the film uh as an acting showcase i mean definitely shia labeouf and vanessa kirby are quite good in this and i think the supporting cast is strong as well i just don't think the script in the second half is quite as good as i think it was uh communicating its themes in the first half but it's a solid film. I think it's more the individual scenes that stand out than the whole cohesiveness of it. But I imagine, you know, for film lovers who are going to check this out and Netflix probably later this year, they'll probably get something out of it. Sure. But, you know, seeing this film after so many intense like dramas, I, I don't know if I was fully able to appreciate the the breadth of it because it was like, you know, one of like several emotionally devastating movies I was watching <laughs> in a period of like four to five days. So I don't know if I fully got the emotional scope of it but I, I can definitely see the criticisms i can see the praise for this film in equal measure all right we're running a little low on time so for these next few because i'm sure there are a few more you have that are awards contenders uh what if we just went through them and yeah really quickly you're just like okay here's this one and yeah if we can do a very concise because unless there's anything left that you feel like you really want to expand upon that really warrants it well i will say um 76 days is a documentary that was filmed uh, earlier this year and they, they pushed it out for this festival. Uh, not they pushed out's a bad term. Like, like they were able to finish it by this year. And what's really fascinating about it is that it is a uh, in-depth look at the coronavirus response in uh, Wuhan from the hospital's perspective. And we're just seeing a very intimate and uh, raw look at what the response is there and like how they're responding to this thing at this very, uh, you know, devastating point in their lives. And I don't know if this is going to get a major release, but for me, I felt like, uh, especially after watching a bunch of like more traditional, like talking head documentaries, it was very, you know, uh, I guess the word would be like revealing and very like uh, investing to see like a like slice of life fly in the wall, look at in th- this uh, very present and uh, very timely look at the this situation right now. And I, I don't know exactly how far it's going to, reach people because i don't imagine a lot of people are going to want to watch a movie right now about the things they're trying to escape from <laughs> uh but if you are interested Possibly, in this type of thing, yeah. it is very good at what it's doing yeah i mean it, it guess it just totally depends on how the next few months go but i know the director how Wu is definitely someone who has had a lot of success with difficult to watch documentaries kind of breaking through and getting some critical acclaim he's one who did uh people's republic of desire which was the, I think it won one of the awards at the South by Southwest a few years ago. And then uh, he did, he did a documentary last year that didn't 
it, it was well regarded, but I mean, we didn't talk about it. It wasn't really on our radar. It was a Netflix documentary called All in My Family. So yeah, that said, I, I, yeah, I wonder if uh, this this one could be his breakout, you know, one, but yeah, we definitely want to keep on our radars. But all right, yeah, if you want to fly by some more, uh, what are what do we have to look forward to? Um, well, in addition to the films I've talked about as far as my favorites, uh, probably my second favorite of the whole film festival is one that I don't know how to sell uh, because it doesn't sound interesting. It sounds very boring if I described it, but it is honestly one of the most visceral <laughs> and most uh, compelling movies I've seen at the festival, which is City Hall. Which oh, is the, the one about uh, Boston? Yes, it's the Boston documentary directed by Frederick Wiseman, who is one of our, you know, most acclaimed documentary filmmakers. I've only seen one film from him prior to this, which is Titicut Follies, uh, which is one of the most uh, heart wrenching looks at mental illness I think I've ever seen. It's not a very easy film to watch. I saw it in college, um, but it's a very, very good film. If you are a fan of documentary and you're studying documentary, uh, would recommend that to watch. But I don't think it's a very good date film. I'll just say that. <laughs> but um, as far as uh, City Hall, yeah, it is a four and a half hour look at Boston's government, which is uh, exploring basically everything from the mayor's position to the kind of more like day to day office kind of thing where it's just a lot of beatings and talking about like how they can reach out to the public, how they can address certain issues that have been going on throughout the thing. And also looking at some of the more low level like, uh, you know, like the garbage men and like the people in the grocery store and just how they kind of go about things and how like basically Boston operates as a system. And it does feel like a little bit almost kind of mechanical as far as like looking at all the different things from a minute, uh, very uh, intensely focused standpoint, which I imagine for general audiences would not be something that they would be interested in. Uh, just because like, I, I like to imagine like a, like Joel Silver type or like some kind of hotshot producer like coming in and being like, Buddy, four and a half hours of the grocery store. What are we doing here? We got to cut this out. You know, like imagine some, you know, director trying to explain this movie to a uh, a uh, Hollywood studio. But um, as far as a, a very in-depth look at this stuff, um, I went into this like, you know, I was just I started. I was like, if I'm not digging it, I won't watch it. You know, like I'll, I, I give this one like a free pass. I want to if I'm not into it, like I'm not going to force myself to watch four and a half hours. Got two and a half hours into it and I was still riveted. But I was like. You know, maybe I can break this up a bit. I want to like, you know, watch the other movies, make sure I have time for those. So I stopped this one halfway through, started to watch another film. As I was watching that, I was just like, you know what? I really just want to go back to City Hall. <laughs> so I, I end up watching this one, uh, you know, not in one sitting, but uh, I did watch it pretty cohesively throughout a uh, throughout a day. And I, I really got invested with it and ended up being one of my favorites of the festival and easily my favorite documentary. Yeah, I, I had a feeling this one would be a hit in some senses, at least with critics, just because for our listeners who don't know, Wiseman is easily one of the most essential documentarians in film history. I mean, this guy's been making documentaries since I want to say like the 1960s. He's, he's prolific and he's an old, he's an old gentleman. He's 90 years old. Yeah. Tidika follows the first one, I believe that he did, which is the only one I've seen besides this, but I know Boston is his hometown and and he's done plenty of documentaries about local government. So it's not a surprise he's made something like this, but I am heartened that the four and a half hours are worth it just because you never know, right? With <laughs> his documentaries, I've, I've seen a few. Some of, some of them are incredible. Some are definitely tough to sit through, um, not because of the filmmaking being poor necessarily but just because it's, it's just tough material <laughs> um yeah. but yeah i i definitely am looking forward to this for sure 
yeah, I mean, I'd be curious to see what you think of it if you check it out. Um, I don't know. Like I said, I, I don't really know how to sell it because I don't know who would be interested in this. But if you are looking for a really if you are interested in this thing, it's it's definitely of quality and it's one of my favorites for sure. All right. What else you got for us? Um, So the last one I saw ended up being one of my favorites. and I didn't expect this going into it, which is a movie called True Mothers. I don't know if you've heard of this one. I imagine you haven't. Uh, just through this festival. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I want to say I'm going to double check this real quick. I, I believe it's Japanese. I don't want to miss. Um, yeah. So the director is Naomi Kawase. And it, yeah, it is Japanese. You're right. Okay. Because um, this one, I think this is one of the ones that was supposed to be a can. And it might have been in a very limited way because I think that this is an example of TIFF helping to raise the profile of it. Yeah. I mean, this one is uh, it's a story told in three parts, more or less, where it's basically we follow a couple who are unable to produce a child they've been trying for a while uh the husband is unfortunately sterile so they decide to adopt a young boy who uh comes from a uh, like troubled mother program like uh, like a way for like you know youth who are pregnant too early in life to you know give their children away to a prospective uh, pair of parents and uh, we follow the mother as um they're raising their child there's an incident at school that you know kind of makes her question like who her son is and like what he's capable of, especially because he's not uh, her birth child. But, you know, I mean, as that goes along, there's a unexpected visitor from what appears to be the birth mother. And she is asking for the child back. And she's like, I, you know, I've, I've thought about it. I want the child back, but like, it seems odd. Cause it's like, we, we see the mother before this and it's like, you don't, she doesn't look like the mom. It's like, she's like, unless she's like super disheveled, like it's not quite clear, like who she is. And then we kind of get more of the backstory as far as like what the mother story is. And it's a really riveting film as far as like, it's not like uh, it, it's very gentle in its approach, even though it sounds like a very heavily dramatic film. It is very kind of like lovely and uh, character driven film where it has like odes to like Terrence Malick and stuff where it's just like very peaceful and very much about the characters living their lives. But it is very much an investing film as far as just like capturing these complex characters and a very, mostly honest, but also mostly investing way in a way that I think is ultimately for the better. And I do think the length of it, which is about 145 minutes long, is a bit much. But um, I, I think it's ultimately worth it in the long run. I was really taken by the film uh, by the end of it and uh, ended up being one of my favorites of the festival. Yeah, so definitely sounds like one to keep an eye on. I definitely am interested. But right, that's true, Mothers. All right, Will, so you, you've gone through plenty of films Let's let's maybe go through some. What are some miscellaneous ones? You know, the, these might be films you enjoyed. Maybe they're you're not quite sure. We haven't mentioned them yet. Not quite sure where to categorize them, but you feel like they're worth mentioning as we close out the conversation. Sure. Um. So I I believe one of the bigger films is going to come out of this film. Not so much for quality, but because I believe it was bought out by a big distributor and plan to get a theatrical release next summer. Is Shadow in the Cloud, which is the um, Chloe Grace Moretz film set in um, World War Two. Excuse me. She is a pilot who is traveling with top secret documents on this B-17 plane. It's not exactly clear what she's doing or what her role is, but she's obviously the only woman on this plane with, you know, a lot of rowdy, uh, outspoken guys who are not really giving her the respect she deserves. And for the most part, the movie is centered with her in like this, like small kind of cockpit area where it has kind of like an ode to um, uh, not only Overlord, which we saw a few years ago, but um uh 750 the um joseph gordon levitt film where it's like so, primarily from her oh, okay. uh in close what was it 
I was just going to say, and for Overlord, is it got some like horror involved with it or? Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. Yes, yeah, it's, it's like we follow her primarily from this like enclosed kind of uh, claustrophobic setting where she's not really being respected and she's having technical issues. But also she notices like this kind of weird, like supernatural thing that's going out there. I don't I'm trying to be vague because I don't know if it's a spoiler to say what, but there's like some uh, mythological creatures that are circling around the plane and she is trying to, uh, you know, get her voice out and, you know, kind of becomes like a metaphor for like her trying to speak out. The men aren't really taking her seriously. And, you know, she has to kind of deal with this whole thing on her own. And the first half of the movie, I really did enjoy. I think it's some of like Chloe Grace Moretz's uh, best acting because primarily fo- focus on her. And it's a very tight, claustrophobic setting, like I said, and it, it feels very gripping. And it's like every little like key decision feels very important. And it's very like stress inducing in a good way. And I'm like, you know, I'm really into this. It's like it's like a short film, too. It's like 83 minutes. It's like, OK, I get into this. It's like a kind of, you know, creature feature kind of thing. But it's also done a very like economically uh, contained sort of way as well. So it will probably primarily focus on Chloe Grace from Retz and doing a way that, you know, really showcases her talents in a genre film. But the second half of the film, without giving away what happens, it just feels like a totally different film and a totally worse film. <laughs> and the fact that like, all the rules they established in the first half just get thrown out the window pretty much literally. And they uh, basically just have to, she, her character just becomes a totally different person, more or less. And uh, it just becomes a totally different film in a way that it, it feels a lot cheesier and a lot dumber and not in a good way. It just, it takes away from what you, or what I at least like so much about the first half of the film. And it was disappointing because I was really digging this for the first half. And then the second half just felt like a, uh, a misfire in uh, a lot hmm. of different respects. I have and, to say, uh, I, I, I have heard of this film. This is the one it's coming back to me. This is the one that they had to rewrite because yeah. of Max well, Landis co-writing yeah. mm-hmm. or he wrote it and then they had to rewrite it because of his sexual assault allegations. And I think he still, I want to say he might still have credit for this film, but I, I am does. curious because probably because of union stuff, but yeah. I am curious if that has something to do maybe with uh, the two halves of this film, not coalescing. I think so. I mean, I was trying to build up to that, but like, I think I don't know. I mean, I don't know where his film ends and where uh, Rosalind, Rosa and Lynn. Roseanne film. Liang. Yeah, we probably won't know for a while what, what the true story is behind this and how it yeah. all played out. I mean, I don't exactly know what happened, but it does feel very um, uh, uneven in that respect. Like, it does feel like there there are two films kind of working at odds with each other. Maybe like another Justice League situation. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, it just feels like. Like, I mean, I don't know if they're just saying that they rewrote it just for like publicity reasons or if like she did have a very Possibly, heavy hand. Yeah. I don't want to I don't want to make it sound like I'm blaming her either. Like, I, I feel like the stuff I don't like about the film feels more Max Landish like it feels like his indulgences, like it feels like he didn't know what to do for the second half of the film. And then like this, he's like kind of like went with his worst impulses or, you know, like a lot of like his bad impulses. So uh, as a screenwriter, so um. I, I don't exactly want to blame or praise the either because I don't know who deserves what. But, um you know, obviously, I'm not a fan of Max Landis as a person. And it was, you know, frustrating to see this film in that respect because I didn't really know he was involved with it until the end. But um as far as the movie itself, like I I want to champion what I like about it because I do like it a lot. But I, I do feel that that tinge of disappointment for what I think doesn't work about the film. And it, it's frustrating because I think. What works really works and what doesn't clearly doesn't. And uh, I don't know. I really don't know how audiences are going to respond to this. because I feel like they're either going to be really with the second half or they're really going to be against it like I am. So uh, I guess we'll see when it comes out. 
I have been waiting for you to bring up Wolf Walkers. Please talk about Wolf Walkers. I, I really want a good animated adventure film. I've heard plenty of mostly good things about this, but I really want to know what you think. I think this is coming to Apple TV Plus and some theaters in the UK later this year. But yeah, so you saw Wolf Walkers. What's, what's the deal with this one? Yeah, this is the uh, Tom Moore and Ross Stewart film who did uh, Secret Kells, most notably, as well as um, Song of Sea and the um, Breadwinners, I believe, from a few years ago. Um, Cartoon Saloon. Yeah, Cartoon Saloon. This is their newest uh, hand-drawn 2D animation film. And uh, it's a very, you know, kind of traditional folky uh, uh, fairy tale type story where uh, it's an environment where like these wolves have uh, supernatural properties where Humans can become wolves and vice versa, and they're ostracized from this uh, small kind of Celtic town for being, you know, magical and uh, mysterious and supernatural and otherworldly. So uh, there is a young apprentice to a hunter who is voiced by um, the the dad is voiced by Sean Bean. Um, I believe the daughter is voiced by Honor Kenevkelski. I'm probably butchering that uh, terribly, but I apologize. And um, she obviously wants to be revered and uh, appreciated by her father, but she tends to uh, or she goes to know a little bit more about the wolves, especially one young girl who happens to be around her age. And she realizes that, oh, you know, these aren't bad people at all. You know, we just misunderstand them. And uh, it, it plays out in a way that, like, I think it, it, it almost feels a little too familiar for me. Like, I think the story plays out in a traditionally kind of, uh, you know, obviously, you know, fairy tale fashion. So it's meant to be kind of simple and charming in that respect. And it is, but I do, I did wish for a little bit more complexity with the story just because I felt like there's enough here to appreciate and admire from an animation standpoint, which is gorgeous. Like obviously from a visual standpoint, this movie is beautiful to look at. And uh, I think it might be some of the best animation they've done in house to date. Um, the story itself, not to say it's bad. It's definitely very charming, very sweet. And uh, it was definitely a breath of fresh air after seeing a lot of uh, very adult and, uh, heavy films it was nice to see something very light and obviously meant to be for a family audience uh i i enjoyed it a good bit i don't know if i'm quite over the moon though as some people are but i definitely like it a good bit see uh, yeah the way you say that that's what raises my skepticism just because i've always found cartoon saloon films to be beautiful and i watch them just for the animation at this point because i just never quite connect with the stories i, I don't know what it is i, I feel like the stories and the characters always feel a lot flatter than the animation to me. I, I just always feel like they're so majestical the way they look, but then the writing of it and the events and the general takeaways from the films just never seem to match the brilliance. They're not like Studio Ghibli in that respect, right? I always feel like, not always, but almost all the time, feel like those films, the animation is in perfect sync with the story that the director wants to tell. So yeah, I would say for sure that I'm going to check this out because I always appreciate hand-drawn animation, but I'm a little, my, my expectations are a little bit low to hear you say that the, this might be a similar kind of output in terms of story. I mean, I will say um, as far as this movie uh, compared to the other ones they've done, I do think this is probably the most audience friendly and the one that's going to probably get the widest audience as far as like appealing to American audiences and obviously audiences uh, internationally, just because it is simple and sweet enough and accessible enough that I think, I do think it's going to win over a lot of people. And I do imagine it's going to do well at the uh, Oscars as far as like best animated feature. I don't know what else is going to be eligible. We're up for that category at this Onward, point. Soul, which will probably win. I don't know if Soul is coming out this year. It's kind of a rumor at this point, but 
Um, Possible. Yeah. And I mean, there's been other there's been other animated films that have gone straight to streaming services. Yeah, I mean, uh, my point is that it it does seem like Apple has a decent chance of getting an Oscar for this, just based on how competitive the category is or how uncompetitive it is. Yeah, the lack of competitive. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it wouldn't be undeserved. I just don't think I'm. Unfortunately, I'm not like in love with it the way some people are, but I definitely like it a lot. Okay. Uh, any last films before we finish out? I know you got plenty more, and we'll certainly be talking about plenty of films that you've already seen on regular episodes of Cinemaholics, but any last ones that can't wait, you just have to mention it now. Um, You know what? I think I've talked a lot about the movies I love, so I'm just going to end it with the one that's probably my least favorite, just because uh, okay. I, I feel pretty good about trashing a film. Is it the Mark Wahlberg one? Yeah, it is. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, Have you heard about this one? um i yes yes i've heard plenty of things and it's i'm i'm almost delighted with how bad i'm hearing it is yeah i didn't know because i when i went to see it like i uh i won't say by name but one critic i follow and i think is a, a friend of Osvars was really taken by this film and uh, i was like oh wow you know like i didn't know anything about it i was just like oh you know this might be a big deal like it's uh, worth checking out and then uh, i was watching i was like uh uh what what movie did they see because <laughs> this is uh not good um so basically we follow mark Wahlberg's character who is a man who is walking across the country to do seminars in high schools and whoever else will uh take his company to advertise against bullying because there is uh an incident that they don't specify at the beginning that happened to his uh gay son that uh you know obviously shook him very deeply and he feels compelled to uh, avoid other people dealing with his fate. And as he does so, his son is uh, traveling around with him. You know, obviously he's supposed to be kind of more of like a specter at this point. And he's like providing a lot of sassy commentary and like being basically almost like a mag pixie dead gay son. <laughs> I feel terrible wow. saying that. But, um, <laughs> Those are words it, I never thought I'd hear from you, Will Ashen, put together oh, like man. that. Just I, saying. I'm, I and it, it's just like, so that's the thing. It's like, I don't, I genuinely don't know where good intentions begin and awards attempts end with this film because I have, I want to assume that they meant well. Like, I think they wanted to make a story that resonated with a lot of people and like kind of healed the divide and did something that, you know, was good for the world, like inspired people, made people reconsider their homophobic beliefs and yeah um, but then i we have to we have to point out that a24 essentially ditched this movie carrie <laughs> fukunaga also left the project so yeah I'd, if you're looking at maybe a breaking point i don't know maybe that's what it is i don't know i just know that um it feels to me like when i was watching i was like this feels like a film that a bunch of out of touch hollywood people would make thinking that would connect to like midwestern people dealing with like family discrepancies and not really sure how to have a conversation about these things, but it's done in a way that where it's like, nothing feels authentic. Nothing really feels like honest to the situation. It all feels manufactured. It all feels like a stereotype and an almost like kind of nineties way of like how to deal with like homophobic beliefs and like people who don't really understand it, but it's like, it feels so outdated in how it's perceiving these things. And also like Mark Wilber's performance. I think he's trying, like, I don't want to assume that he's doing this for like an awards thing, but there is like this sort of like almost like, I guess indifference to it. Like it doesn't feel like he's fully invested in this project. Like it feels like he's like kind of put off by the whole thing. And he's like kind of going through the motions in a way that like, I didn't fully buy his character. I didn't fully buy 
what they're going for here. And uh, I really feel bad for the the son character who's uh, played by Reed Miller because he's really, you know, he's putting his heart into this. And he has one scene in this that's like easily the best scene in the film because, because it's so devastating from an emotional standpoint. But his character is just like the most poorly written gay son I've ever seen, <laughs> I think, in a movie. Like, it's just like it doesn't feel authentic. It doesn't feel real. It feels like a entirely screenwriter idea of uh what a gay son would be like in, in America. Ah, yikes. And uh, it's, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm being a little harsh on it because I want to stand out compared to the other films just because like, I didn't hate any movie I saw at the film festival. I, I think at, this is easily the worst one I saw, but it's like, I, I at most I'm just kind of like, well, that was a mess, but I, it was short. <laughs> like that was like kind of like yeah. my, my perception of it. Like it's 90 minutes. It didn't really annoy me as much as it just kind of like frustrated me as far as just like, I, I, I want to assume that they meant well. I, maybe it's me assuming too much, but like I, I want to believe that they, they had good intentions with this and that they were trying to do something that would make the world a better place. But oh, boy, it is <laughs> it is not not good. And, and I, I imagine by the time award season comes around, if they do try to push us for award season, it's going to get annihilated by like I think I think Tiff critics by and large are being kind of nice on this film I think they're kind of trying to be like considerate and it's like well you know they tried but I imagine like the type of folks who thought like Green Book was bad like oof, this is yeah <laughs> I, I want to bring up so because because I heard about this right and I, one of the reasons this was on my radar not because of Gold uh, Wahlberg but because of the director Ronaldo Marcus Green I think I had heard about this around the time that it was announced that King Richard the the film the next film he's directing which is will smith starring and it's about the father of the uh, uh the serena and venus tennis sisters right oh yeah yeah serena yeah. and mm-hmm. venus williams and i heard about this movie coming out and i was like oh my gosh because this is his second film his last one was monsters and men which is a i haven't seen it but i heard it was a good showcase yeah. for john david washington and that yeah and yeah we were supposed to talk about it last year but we neither of us got to it i think and so this this was on my radar. I was like, oh, you know, this this could be an interesting. But then I started seeing the reviews hit Letterbox, and I want to bring up two of them. One of them uh, from Jake Cole. He said this is TIFF 2020's designated fake movie from Tropic Thunder film. Yeah, and, I saw that. that was good. Yeah, and then another one I really liked was from uh, Patrick Devitt. He said, "I wish Joe Bell was friends with Larry Crown," which kind of told me <laughs> everything I think I needed to know about good Joe Bell. So yeah. Sad to hear that. I hope this is just kind of like a weird anomaly for Marcus Green and that we're going to be seeing something really great with his third film. So, I mean, that's why I'm assuming that the intentions were probably good here, because it's like I don't like I don't want to assume that people make movies for awards. Like, I know that sometimes happens, but like I I have to imagine more more often than not, like filmmakers have something they want to say, something that they're they're hoping to express with empathy and understanding to a wide audience and they want to use films to give people a new perspective or a more enlightened experience on some very difficult and heartbreaking things and i want to assume that's what was here i just think the execution didn't happen yeah i honestly will i genuinely think that every year these studios go through a slush pile of scripts and the scripts themselves are like what you're saying that they weren't written solely for awards but i think they are picked out of the pile by producers because they think they have awards potential. And then a lot of the time, the creative decisions behind how that script comes to fruition is governed around how do we make this thing win a bunch of awards. I genuinely think that is more often than not the process with a lot of these TIFF, Venice, and Telluride films. 
but it's very possible. That's just my I mean, I don't. Bit. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a producer. I'm not a Hollywood insider in that respect. I don't not exactly yet. know what goes on. I just assume that someone would not spend a year and a half of their lives just solely getting an Oscar. But who knows? I mean, I don't know. I, I I genuinely don't think it comes from the director or the screenwriter most of the time. I, I really do think right. it comes from the producers. But Possibly. I think this is a this is a good opportunity, Will, for us to tell the listeners about our film we're producing oh boy, about Time Machine. Yeah, yeah. Um, go ahead. <laughs> you know what? No, we should save it. We should save that that for another time. <laughs> oh man, don't want anybody uh, to steal yeah. our idea. I was gonna say I did, well, you'd have to go use that time machine to go back in time <laughs> to now to yeah. prevent us from sharing this idea, unless. This idea was already shared in a timeline. Oh, no. This is us going back in time to fixing it. So, uh, yeah. Anyway. I think you're um, describing the movie better this way than you would be if you just gave us an synopsis. So, good job. Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, other than that, I mean, I can just kind of like run down a list of the other things I saw. And if any listeners are interested, I can just talk about them next week if you want. Or if we have more time, I can share more thoughts. Well, and on. also what we can do is we can link in the show notes Will's full ranking on Letterboxd. So you can take a look okay. at that as well. So that way you don't have to go through every single thing. But yeah, if you want to quickly list off a few and then we will call it. Yeah. I mean, in addition to the films that I've already talked about and shared my thoughts on, I've also seen Apples, No Ordinary Man, The Disciple, Memory House. Uh, let's see. What is this one called? Uh, Fireball, Visitors from Darker Worlds, Monday, Another Round, Kill It and Leave This Town, Emma. LK, FBI, Holler, Preparations to Be Together for an Unknown Period of Time, which I saw solely for the title. Uh, the Best Part, or My Best Part, The Kid Detective, Spring Blossom, Concrete Cowboy, Enemies of the State, I'm Greta, Fauna, The Waterman, New Order, Underplay, oh, and Underplay, that's it. So we should say three of those films you already reviewed for the site. More might be coming soon, but yeah, Waterman, Holler, and... Uh, enemies of the state you have written reviews on the site that the listeners can check out plus you mentioned the disciple which is another one that won an award i think um i think amplify voices so uh yeah may, we might have to have an offline conversation about that one at some point yeah i wanted to talk about that one a little bit unfortunately i didn't get the time but yeah it was a good one yeah unfortunately we have to say adieu but thank you for listening to this recap of the Toronto International Film Festival 2020. And thank you, Will, so much for not only taking the time to watch all these films, but taking all the time to explain to me why I might need to know some more about them as we get into the winter movie season. I have a feeling we're going to be revisiting most, if not all, of these films in the very near future. I hope so, yeah. I mean, I'm definitely uh, excited to talk about more of these films and have a chance to talk about them. So, yeah, I'm excited. Thank you always for listening. We'll see you all on the main show next week from the internet California. I am John Negroni. And for the internet Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. See you next time. <laughs>